In the spring of 1995, disruption was in the air. A quiet and invisible disruption that few would have noticed. A program called the NSF Net was shutting down. It didn't sound like much, did it? But as those switches were thrown and a bank of servers grew cold, a part of America was remade. You've maybe heard of the ARPANET, sort of the godfather of the internet, right? An early set of connections between a few military sites and universities, and I know you're familiar with today's internet, but there's a missing link between those two points. Another network that thrived for a while in the 80s and 90s. This missing link connects the early days of publicly funded innovation and the later days of commercialized networks. It was called the NSF Net. The National Science Foundation network, and it served as the internet's backbone for years. The little-known story of its origin and eventual demise in 1995 reveals a lot about how we got the online life we have today. It's the story of how the internet was privatized. I'm Saranya Barik, and this is Command Line Heroes, an original podcast from Red Hat. All season, we're exploring one fateful year, 1995, to understand how today's tech reality was formed in that single moment. We're learning how one year became a catalyst for our whole future, and no moment in 1995 tells you more about that massive change than April 30th, when the internet's backbone, the NSF net, was switched off. The story of that fateful moment begins, though, back in the early 1980s. The United States was falling behind other countries in the field of large-scale computing, and the National Science Foundation, the NSF, decided to remedy that by creating supercomputing centers all around the states. Only problem was, scientists needed access to those supercomputers. The logical thing to do was simply ring up the Defense Department and ask them to upgrade the network that already existed, the ARPANET, and that's exactly what the NSF did. They made a deal, paid the Defense Department two million dollars for their trouble, and waited. What the NSF might not have considered was that the Defense Department wasn't so excited about funneling more traffic to the ARPANET. Here's Mark Weber. The curatorial director of the Internet History Program at the Computer History Museum. The chance of people getting into something that's relatively open and not properly secured was going up. Try and look at this from the perspective of the Defense Communication Agency. Sure, it's nice that all these academics get to share information across the ARPANET, but that made state secrets vulnerable in the process. They grew anxious about the security of the network. Back then, in 1983, there was a sci-fi movie called War Games. A teenage Matthew Broderick finds a back door into the U.S. military's computer system. Shall we play a game? And thinking he's playing a video game, he almost starts World War III. Sure, that sounds far-fetched. But that movie reflected real concerns. The military in the 1980s was growing frustrated that the ARPANET was open to outsiders. 
researchers tended to want openness and to share material without worrying too much about you know, copyright or permission. And the military obviously wants security and traceability. So there was that tension from the start. There was a point they even thought about just getting rid of the ARPANET. They might have gone off in completely their own direction. Eventually, the scientists over at NSF got the message. The Defense Department was clearly not enthusiastic about this. That's Douglas Van Howling, a professor at the University of Michigan and a pioneer from the early days of the Internet. He told us the Defense Department never did get around to implementing those connections that the NSF needed. As a result, the National Science Foundation realized it had to take a different course. In fact, they planned to build a network all their own. In 1985, the NSF Net was born. Independent of the military, the National Science Foundation could provide academics with email, with file transfer protocols so they could upload and download files, and even remote access to time-sharing systems. So they were offering a lot of what the ARPANET had offered. But no, that's not the end of the story. The NSF Net had its heart in the right place, and its protocols in the right place too. But it was built on a DEC microcomputer that could manage only 56 kilobits per second, otherwise known as dial-up speed. Downloading a movie at that speed would take about 213 hours. The instant that the scientists needed to start transmitting substantial files from their universities to the supercomputing centers, that system rapidly became overloaded. Then as more and more people on the various campuses started to use the NSFNet, the first generation, for purposes other than transmitting files, that overload became even more serious. They were quickly bogged down, so the NSF put out a request for proposals. Who would like to upgrade their original 1980s network? Who had the vision to deliver phase two of the NSF net? They received many submissions. But Van Howling and a team called Merit from the University of Michigan had spent six weeks stitching together an ambitious proposal that stood far above the rest. And this wasn't just the work of academics. Van Howling and Merritt teamed up with the state of Michigan, with IBM, and with MCI. The Merritt team had supercharged their game by bringing huge corporate players to the table. Van Howling heard in advance that their proposal had been selected. On the eve of the official announcement, he celebrated with his team, equal parts elated and daunted. It would be their task to save the nation's handful of fledgling regional networks, which were all tied to the overworked NSFNet. They had to make viable what pioneers had been struggling for decades to build. The work ahead seemed enormous. We were sitting together, a group of us that worked on this, and one of us said, you know, this is going to change the world. Changing the world, in this case, meant changing the relationship between the National Science Foundation and big tech. A relationship that, until then, had some rough spots. 
When word got out in the late 80s that the NSF wanted to build a faster network, AT&T sent over a team of executives to try and dissuade them. AT&T was claiming that, first of all, the NSF net would never work. And second of all, if anybody should be building a new network, it should be them. Van Howling and his team wanted to move beyond the dichotomy of private or public. They wanted private and public. We understood that the National Science Foundation had only budgeted $15 million for five years to run the NSF net phase two. And looking at the traffic we knew would occur, we were confident that would be inadequate. So we reached out to the IBM Corporation and asked if they would partner with us. Now, at that time, as hard as it is to believe today, there were no commercial internet routers. The consequence of that was that IBM, essentially from whole cloth, built the routers for NSFNet Phase 2. And they contributed all that technology to the project. A huge leg up for the Merit team. And they didn't stop there. We also knew that we would need to have communication lines that were capable of operating at a much higher speed, in this case, at one and a half megabits per second. Just think about the change from 56 kilobits per second to one and a half megabits per second. So we approached MCI, which at that time was a very small telephone company, and asked them if they would be partners with us in providing the communication lines we needed on a nationwide basis. Suddenly, that little network from NSF had some pretty major players on its team, inspired by commercial interests of their own. Together, they really might change the world. But several innovations would be necessary first. As Van Howling mentioned, there weren't any commercial routers. IBM had to design them based on their own scientific workstations. A half dozen workstations were assembled and new software was written to handle all the routing. IBM had invented a new way to handle the flow of data, a multiprocessor router. And then what about those one and a half megabit communication lines? T1 lines, as they were called, were used by telephone companies. But using them for the NSFNet's purposes caused bit patterns to shut down. So MCI had to rebuild the hardware and software. We never would have been successful in this effort if it hadn't been for the development of high-powered scientific workstation personal computers, which IBM had developed. And without MCI's advanced microwave and fiber network that went across the nation, I think it's important to say that this was a partnership between corporations, higher education, and the federal government. And we never would have been successful without the contributions from the corporations. Adding to all those corporate resources was the Internet Protocol Suite, TCP-IP, that had been developed by the researchers who produced the ARPANET. There had been skepticism, at first, that TCP-IP could scale, but those skeptics were proved wrong. In fact, what NSFNet did was proved that this internet technology could scale from being a small system that supported computer science researchers, that was what the ARPANET was, 
to a system that could serve literally millions of people around the world. Upgrading the network in time for their July 1988 completion date was an enormously complicated task. It was crazy. <laughs> the, the amount of concentrated effort it took to build this from scratch network in that short period of time, actually it was close to miraculous. The miracle became a reality in part by managing the relationship between Merit's nationwide backbone and the 13 regional networks that relied on it. And that job belonged to Merit's project systems manager, Elise Garrick. You have a backbone as the consolidating top tier, then you have the regional networks as the second tier, and then all the universities and academic areas within those regions connected to the regional networks was created. So that architecture was to be further implemented with the T1 backbone. Garrick remembers that, despite the big leap to a T1 backbone in 1988, growth on the network was leaping too. Across those 13 regional networks, there were at first 170 smaller networks reliant on the T1 backbone. But only a year later, traffic had grown by 500%. So, even turning a 56 kilobit network into a 1.5 megabit network wasn't going to match that new demand. In fact, Garrick, Van Howling, and the whole Merit team were starting to encounter a kind of paradox. The better you make the network, the more people use the network. They were building a positive feedback loop. In case you're keeping track, there was no World Wide Web at this point. We're still in the late 1980s, and yet, even the simple applications of FTP and email were enough to drive exponential traffic. Soon, they needed to upgrade the network again. To solve the NSFnet's traffic woes once and for all, they would need to upgrade from a T1 to a T3 backbone. That meant leaping from 1.5 megabits to 45 megabits. Easier said than done. MCI had figured out how to send data over T1, but T3 was entirely different. Meanwhile, there were no T3 routers. The architecture and adapter cards would also need to be different. This would be a full renovation. You'd solve one little issue that seemed small at the time and you thought, oh, then everything will be good. And the next thing you know, you found another little issue. So it was issue after issue after issue. Just to give you an idea how new all this tech was and how much they were flying by the seat of their pants, here's Garrick describing a demo they were trying to give of a router prototype. It overheated too much. And we borrowed an ice sculpture from the banquet room, put it behind the router with a fan so that it could blow cool air so that the router wouldn't stop and that we could demonstrate the T3 capability. The T1 upgrade from the fall of 1987 to the summer of 1988 had taken eight months to complete. But they began working almost immediately on the T3 upgrade, which was fully deployed in 1991. And all the while, as this new internet was being fashioned through a partnership of public and private resources, some pretty basic questions were being raised. Is the internet going to end up being a public good or a private commodity? 
Is it a utility? Is access to the internet a right? What kind of network are we building? Those conversations happened everywhere. They happened within the offices of Merit. They happened at the regional technical meetings. They happened at the global meetings. And there was a lot of concern on, on several fronts. Lots of people in the research and academic community were perfectly happy having the National Science Foundation support a backbone for the whole United States. Meanwhile, others saw a commercial opportunity, a chance to offer services to the general public. There were then emerging internet service providers because other people did see the opportunity, the commercial opportunities to offer service more broadly than to a restricted research and academic community. And those were organizations like PSINet and UUNet who felt that the National Science Foundation were going to compete with them. NSF had by then created another entity called Advanced Network and Services, which was designed to handle non-academic users. The new internet service providers didn't look kindly on that either. And meanwhile, some of Merritt's top minds were being wooed away to work for commercial enterprises. But the most important thing to remember is that the more successful NSFNet and Merritt were, the more they were in danger of outgrowing their own capacity. When they unveiled the T3 backbone, they produced a watershed moment. In effect, they created the kind of internet they were never going to be able to handle. They had scaled the U.S. internet into something that had the true ability to go global. International traffic could transit their network and grow, which means the inevitable finally happened. Certainly people didn't want it to go away, (laughs) and they were very unhappy when it was going to be shut down. Shut down? I know, things were trucking along there. We jumped from 56 kilobits to a T1, and then up to a full T3 backbone. But all good things. What happened first was that those regional networks, some of them decided to commercialize their operations. Janet Abate is a professor in the Department of Science, Technology, and Society at Virginia Tech. They started out as these nonprofits that were simply running a regional network to connect universities in their region. And then some of them said, well, what if we create a sort of commercial version of ourselves and we'll sell the service back to the universities, but then we can also sell that service to commercial customers. New ideas about commercializing networks were popping up, even as the ARPANET was shut down in 1990. On the one hand, the federal government was debating whether to build a national network. But on the other hand, browsers like Mosaic were emerging, driving traffic and commercial interest for internet service providers, ISPs, which kept popping up to capitalize on the new marketplace. All of these are coming together in this chaotic way where NSF is from one direction, getting Congress saying you need to build this network, and from another direction, you've got the ISPs saying we want to provide commercial service, and then there's people who want to be on the web. And so I think NSF, you know, in a sense, just wanted to toss that football to someone else (laughs) at a certain point and say, you know, we don't want this to be our problem anymore. The first viable solution we see, we might just go with that. As they finally edged toward that pivotal moment of 1995, an escape plan began to form. 
the emerging internet had grown beyond the purview of the NSF. They had proven that TCP/IP could thrive without a central manager, and those ISPs were quickly outstripping the NSF's capacity. A handoff to the private sector seemed the best way to ensure the network could continue to scale. That earlier vision of a non-commercial, publicly funded internet was coming to a close. But that didn't mean a handoff to the private sector would be smooth sailing. Elise Garrett remembers the chaotic months leading up to the 1995 shutdown. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was such an intense period of time. There was so much to do. The regional networks were less than pleased. Still, little by little, they were forced to select new providers. But it wasn't until、um, February that basically Merit sent the termination notice of the service to all of its 19 locations, and that's when it, people became desperate. <laughs> they, they, they started, you know, sending us so many configuration changes. Some of the regionals at the last month. Said,、um, well, you know, we're not going to make it. Our, our connection from our new service provider won't be here. And it's like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? <laughs> you know, we're, gonna, we're shutting stuff down. A couple regionals said, well, we just don't want to do it. And we said, you know, sorry, <laughs> this is going to happen. It was going to happen, and it was going to change everything. Yes, there had been dial-up services like America Online, which paid for their own infrastructure. Banks and airlines had their own networks too. But after April 30th, 1995, vastly more businesses and entrepreneurs were going to be coming to the table. On the NSF Net's very last day. A dozen staff gathered at the University of Michigan to finally shut it down forever. One by one, they shut off the ENSSs, the Exterior Nodal Switching Subsystems. And that evening, the NSF Net breathed its final breath. For some, that day in 1995 came to be known as Internet Independence Day, the day the internet truly left the government's domain. It launched a new age of e-commerce and social media, a whole new landscape of online experience. But the internet's history is never quite that simple, as Janet Abate notes. The innovations that the academic world brings to our network world did not stop that day. The National Science Foundation never stopped funding research in high-performance computing and networking.、Um, I think their current focus is on wireless networking,、um, among other things, funding advanced, cutting-edge networks for universities and scientists. From their point of view, the NSFNet was an early episode in an ongoing、um, research enterprise. That research enterprise lives on. What is sometimes missing today, though, is the oversight, the policy that government can provide. In a way, I'm not sure what we have today is any more sustainable than the NSFNet was in 1995. We have conflicts we don't exactly know how to resolve, and we didn't cure the problem in 1995 by throwing it to the private sector. 
um, I think there was this hope that the private sector is kind of a universal solvent and, and everything will be fixed by it. Um, and that didn't really happen. So I think we have to face up to the fact that there's always going to be conflicts on the internet and simply hoping people will exercise self-restraint is not really a substitute for real policy mechanisms. In recent years, an open internet order reasserted government control and lobbyists for private companies pushed back. That balance between public and private is something we can lose sight of when we roam the internet today. Sometimes it feels like one big commercial, but that's just not the whole picture. Here's Douglas Van Howling one last time to remind us of the internet's roots. I think what a lot of people don't understand is that the internet today stemmed from the need of research of the research community first in the United States and then all over the world to be able to do their science the NSFnet was built to support researchers across the nation in working with one another in accessing the supercomputers in accessing data that they needed to do their they needed to do their research. So as hard as it may be to realize today, the motivation for NSFNet and the motivation for the first large-scale generation of the of the internet had nothing to do with making any money. It was absolutely about advancing knowledge and supporting the research community. However the internet evolves from here, its most exciting advances won't just come from some new startup. Fundamental changes still tend to come from that place where private innovation meets the pure science and research that underpins our online lives. That was the marriage of public and private that had pushed the NSF net to a point of such fantastic possibilities by 1995. For a brief moment, in between the ARPANET and today's internet, the NSFNet shined a light on what's possible when government, academics, corporations, all the players, start playing on one team. The story of the young internet sometimes gets told as a journey from the public realm to the private realm. But that's not exactly how I see it. Our internet today is a private realm built on top of a public realm, an online experience that relies on decades of public and academic work. We should remember that when we're looking around for the next big thing, because it might just come from that sweet spot, that moment in 1995 when the NSF net just couldn't stop growing. Next time, it's the web's dominant language, HTML. We're exploring its origins, its standardization, and we're also asking whether English programming languages are ready to embrace a truly global perspective. Until then, I'm Saran Yitbarek, and this is Command Line Heroes, an original podcast from Red Hat. Keep on coding. Hey, I'm Jeff Ligon. I'm Director of Engineering for Edge and Automotive at Red Hat. One of the most exciting things about edge computing right now is the potential to join forces with AI. 
There's so much data on the ground that businesses can use to improve services. But running sophisticated AI workloads at the edge is just not a do-it-yourself operation. You get buried in the details very quickly. Specialized hardware, custom-built this and that, workloads in the cloud and at the edge. How do you pick the right devices? What's the OS? How do you update everything? At Red Hat, we don't think those details should be where you have to focus. You can hand that complexity to us. Our edge solutions provide a consistent operational experience for even the most complex workloads, from the data center to the cloud to the farthest edge. Learn more at redhat.com slash edge.